TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer Kate Bullock about society's historically skeptical view of a single woman. I think that's what it is. It just, it's a threat to the social order to have a woman by herself. Here's Debbie Millman. Spinster. It's an old-fashioned word that still packs a negative punch. It evokes the image of a woman getting on in years whom life has passed by. But words have a way of going out of fashion or of evolving into new meanings and associations. With a new book titled Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own, Kate Bolick is bringing the word back and redefining it for our times. The book is about experiences of women on their own and examines her own life, as well as the lives of five extraordinary women. Kate Bolick is a contributing editor to The Atlantic, and her writing has appeared in The New York Times and many other magazines. Kate, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. You grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. Your father was a lawyer, and your mother was a journalist. How would you describe your childhood? It sounds rather bucolic to me. Oh, my me. God. Just the other day, I was saying to someone, I think I had a perfect childhood. It wow. was so nice. It's this beautiful little coastal town, a very strong sense of community. My parents had moved there in the 70s from Virginia because they wanted a walking-based life and a community-based life where they could be very involved in local politics. So all my schools were within walking distance, and I was involved in a, a, an incredibly creative and vibrant children and adults theater all through my childhood. It was a wonderful place to grow up. In Chapter 1 of your book, Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own, you state that when you were very young, you learned you weren't pretty. 
Really? Do you still feel that way? Oh, God. I can hardly touch this topic. It's so huge and complicated right now. I've been thinking about it. I was going to write about it for The Times. No, I'm, I, was a very, I was not a pretty girl, right? So that, I mean, that's, How was that possible? Oh, I had a huge overbite and buck teeth. I actually had eight extra teeth that had to be pulled <laughs> so okay. that my teeth could grow in. You know, and then I had, when I got a little older, I had bad acne, and it was the 80s. <laughs> so I was a fashion victim. <laughs> we were all ugly in the 80s. Uh, but but I also think my mother was really insecure about her appearance and uh, and very uncomfortable with feminine uh, masquerading, you know, to put it sort of dramatically. So I, I think I grew up with a kind of real world sense of my own self, but also internalizing her sense of herself. And did your opinion of your own appearance change at any point? No. So I, I developed this idea that, um, you know, I'm funny looking, but I have a great personality. <laughs> that's how I understood myself. And, and that's how I moved through the world all the way up until the cover of this book. And then, uh, you know, granted, it's a like, really great photograph of me and I'm photoshopped and the whole deal, stylist, hair, blah, blah, blah. Um, but to have people reacting to that, you know, saying this beautiful woman on the cover, and I, I've been like, what, me? And I had to look at it again, and it's been really strange, a, a real, like, identity crisis in a weird way to realize that maybe I wasn't as, like, unattractive as I thought I was. It's always interesting to look back at pictures of your youth, I look back now and think, wow, I was really adorable. Right, right. And, and I certainly did not feel that way then, do not feel like that now, and can only imagine what I'll think if I make it to, say, 70 or so and look back at the pictures of me now. I know. I, you know, and it's funny that you're asking about this because I was thinking about it on the way over here because when my mother died in 1996 for her funeral, my brother and I were collecting a bunch of photos to make albums to put out during the wake. And my mother, you know, would talk about how she was unattractive or that was her sense of herself. And I believed her, you know, because I don't know, that's what she said. And it wasn't until she was dead and I was looking through the albums to collect these things that I realized that she was a really attractive woman. It was heartbreaking. Mm. It was only, I could only see it myself without her looking over my shoulder, annotating what I saw. And I'm about to publish a piece with photographs of the two of us together. And I've been looking through a folder of photos. And so I was looking at pictures of myself from like my late 20s and early 30s, which was a time of huge upheaval and transition for me when I first moved to New York City. And I just felt, you know, kind of peak ugliness. And then there I was looking just like an attractive young woman. It's just like, God, it's so weird what our brains see yes. in our emotional experience of ourselves. We could do an entire podcast just on that, yeah. but I really do want to talk about your book. And I want to talk a little bit about your first experiences of being alone. You've written about that experience and state that this was when you were a child and your family vacationed on a beach in a tiny island off the coast of Maine. And in your book, you state, I built then my own kingdom according to my own laws. And when the sun beat down, it beat down only on me. And when my feet acclimated to the freezing water, it was my resilience that made this so. My experience of being alone was total. How old were you at this time? So that's like eight, nine. And I was reading uh, Island of the Blue Dolphins was my favorite book. And when I was writing Spinster, uh, about halfway through the process, I suddenly got fixated on remembering Island of the Blue Dolphins. And maybe two weeks passed where 
It was all I could think about and all I wanted to write about, and I had no idea why. (laughs) And it was kind of freaking me out because I had a lot of work to do to meet this book deadline, and this seemed like a useless tangent. But the book is about a little girl who gets left behind on an island, uh, and it's a true story, lives alone for 18 years, and Play Karana was her name, and I would pretend that I was shipwrecked on an island and so forth, stranded on an island. And um, after two weeks of obsessively returning to the book, I realized not only was that an experience of the power of being alone and creating your own universe, but it was also my first instance of what I went on to do in adulthood and write about in the book, which was to attach myself to an imaginary figure and kind of try on her life for size. So I realized, oh, this is actually an important memory and belongs in the book. You've also written about how when you turned 14 and began your freshman year in high school, you had to cede the private kingdom of your imaginary life to the demands of that larger empire where the girls who were already drinking beer and having sex were writing new laws you didn't want to play but couldn't ignore. Kate, did you find that you had to behave in a certain way to fit in? Was being popular important to you? Yeah, I decided in middle school that I I had a choice. I could be not popular or popular, (laughs) and I was going to choose popular. And I was a very naive kid, and I I had no interest in leaving childhood or entering adolescence. I never wanted to be a grown-up. I never wanted to leave home. You were Um, happy, right? Why would you want anything to change? right, Right. So Uh, Yeah, so that felt daunting to me. I was acutely aware in eighth grade, like, this is the end. This has been so great being a kid, and now I'm losing control because high school is going to be scary. And and I'm watching these kids all around me who are just more sophisticated than I am and doing stuff I don't feel ready to do. And I'm not going to do it. I didn't do it. But, um, you know, so I I retained a sense of self in the sense that I didn't drink and I didn't have sex because I really just really felt not ready for those things. But I did struggle with letting go of childhood. You went to Colby College in Maine and you studied poetry. And I believe your intention was to be a poet and to teach. Yes. So quite, quite a difference. But when you were 23, your mother died unexpectedly. And you've written that in the months that followed her death, You were gutted to discover that without your conversations, you had absolutely no idea how to make sense of yourself. And hearing about your really wonderful childhood puts it a lot more into context for me in terms Mm -hmm. of having read the book and, and understanding how you tried to manage through conversing with other powerful women. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that realization that this was something that you wanted to do? You know, I started doing it just by habit. I was getting fascinated by women's lives, specific women, and really, uh, you know, trying to learn everything I could about them and read all of their works. But it wasn't until, uh, you know, I moved from Boston to New York in the year 2000. And that year, I started seeing a psychiatrist. And he was like, what's up with this? With you, 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 you're you, reading about all these dead women all the time. It does have anything to do with your mother. And I thought, oh, that is so obvious. No, I am so much more complicated than that <laughs> obvious interpretation. But he was exactly right. I was, um, I, my, my mother was a, a very talkative person and very uh, communicative person. We just, it was a very talky family. When there were problems, we sat down and discussed them. And the kind of closeness I had with her, it wasn't the typical mother-daughter-girlfriends kind of thing. She was very much my mother. There was a boundary between us. I I looked up to her. I didn't think of her as my peer. But the kinds of conversations that we had 
really were the center of my life. It was really was how I made sense of myself in the world. And so she died. And then all I wanted to do was talk to her about her dying and that experience of grief and what to do with it. And I, I felt consciously it's going to take me a long time to figure out how to fill this conversation back in. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And so finding these women and talking to them, I didn't know that that was an answer to it until I had been doing it for a very long time. So you chose five women, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Maeve Brennan, Neith Boyce, Edith Wharton, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. How did you choose those five? Well, I came across them through the course of life. I found Maeve Brennan while reading The New Yorker in the year 1998. Uh, and she's the first one, my first spinster... Uh, Comrade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neith Boyce was a minor figure in a history I was reading of Greenwich Village, Bohemia, a couple of years after I found Maeve Brennan. Edith Wharton, I'd fallen in love with in college, but I had never thought she was someone I could talk with in my head because she was from such a different background than me. She just seemed like a, a godlike figure, really. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, I actually was really distrustful of a lot of my adult life. I mean, I went through, I really loved her poetry when I was young. Then in college, her work was not fashionable, and I just sort of took that as gospel. So I, I didn't think that she would have anything to teach me personally, but it turns out that she did. And Charlotte Perkins Gilman, I had never had any interest in. And it was really actually while writing the book that I came to have a deeper connection to her. After graduating from Colby, you went back to school for a master's in cultural reporting and criticism at NYU and had a number of jobs at magazines. You started first at The Atlantic, a magazine you still write for, and went on to become the culture editor of Veranda Magazine, a consulting editor at the Ritz-Carlton Magazine, and the executive editor of Domino Magazine. What was working at Domino like? It was intense. <laughs> Conde Nast. <laughs> yes. Did you ever take the elevator with Anna Wintour? <laughs> never. I never saw her, well, but I would dream about her sometimes. <laughs> In 2011, you wrote an article for The Atlantic that caused quite a cultural ruckus. In a cover article titled, What? Me Marry? You first broached the possibility that you, as well as lots of other successful, attractive women like you, uh, might never marry and never, ever have children. Um, this wasn't because they weren't able to, but rather because they actually didn't want to. They rejected the option. Um, the piece drew, I think, 50,000 likes on Facebook, maybe more. Um, countless reaction pieces, hundreds of letters to the magazine. What was that like for you? Were you surprised by the response? I was completely overwhelmed. I had no idea that would happen. So The Atlantic had come to me with the idea for the piece, which was, Kate, can you look into how worsening economic trends are shaping the future of dating marriage and the family, and particularly how the economy is hitting men and what that means for all of this? So I, I took on the assignment, did it incredibly quickly. It was about eight weeks from start to finish. And I flew to five different places around the world as part of the reporting. So it was like the kind of immersively intense research and reporting experience where you don't even have time to think about what you're doing because you're just doing it. And while I was writing the piece, these women I had been accumulating over the years, Maeve Brennan and Neith Boyce and so forth and Edna Millay, were rising to the back of my mind. And meanwhile, the magazine had 
asking me to write this article in the first person, drawing on my own experiences as a then 39-year-old, never-married woman, which I agreed to do. But I didn't have any sense of how I could write about this changing landscape in the first person because men's worsening economic prospects, which was the premise that they had come to me with, had nothing to do with why I was still single. I didn't know why I was still single. So I was trying to wrestle that out, figuring out as I was doing my reporting, what will be my voice? How will I figure out my way in? And then I came across the now very well-publicized statistic, which at the time was not so much, which was that more than half of the population is unmarried. And when I saw that, I had that classic reporter's like scoop feeling where my heart started to race and I called up my editor and I said, this is the story. It's about this growing demographic of single people and I'm part of it. And let me look into what that means or where it came from. And he said, sure, go forth. But doing it because I had been thinking about single women as an architect type and on a very personal private level talking to them in my head and thinking about my life, I didn't know if other people would be interested in it. So I had that experience while writing the piece of, of like, I hope someone reads this thing when I'm oh, done. it captured you know? the zeitgeist. Right. It so controlled the zeitgeist. It just totally blew me away. I had no idea that would happen. The article led to a bidding war for your book and the recent publication, obviously. Um, the book was a New York Times bestseller and was also named one of the best books of the year. Congratulations. Thank you. In the book, you detail how marriage is undergoing a real radical change and describe how the overall number of single women in America starts at a high of 34% in 1890, which shocked me. Yeah. Shocked me. Me too. Then slides down to 1% per decade, all the way to the lowest point, which is 17% in 1960, which did not shock me, which actually even felt a little high, thought it would have mm. been lower, and then climbs back up and up 2% per decade to 53% in 2013, which is, I guess, the number that you was the most recent discovered. Number. Yes. Yeah. Research analysts and demographers would consider this to be statistically significant. In, in fact, it's staggeringly statistically significant. What do you believe are the key drivers in this V-shaped trajectory? Uh, feminism. So in 1890, we were still in that first wave of feminism phase. So we didn't have the vote yet, but there was a lot of solidarity and activism going on uh, among women. And we had more women in the workforce and in universities than ever before. And when women have more opportunities, they're less likely to get married. So that's what was taking place then. And then the wars happen. The country becomes more conservative. Things are dialed back. The family, you know, we have the post-war fetishism of the family happen and women are shoved back into the home and marriage is the highest ideal. So that's why we see those mid-century numbers. But after that, we have the second wave of the women's movement. And so ever since then, then women have just been climbing higher and higher and higher. So as that's happening, marriage rates are going down. In an interview in the UK Telegraph, I read that in Britain, more women in the 25 to 44 age range are choosing to live alone. And just over half of women under 50 have never been married. Half of women under 50. Um, women in their 20s now earn 3.6% more than men in the same age group. That was extraordinary. Yeah. There is no longer the economic incentive to marry, as you're mentioning, and single mothers 
are far from an anomaly. Do you remember in the 1980s when sitcom star Murphy Brown was stigmatized by the vice president of the United States for having a baby out of wedlock? Yeah, times have really changed. But you see the transformation of what it means to be a woman living alone in the media. And I think it's fascinating to see. We have Marlo Thomas in the 60s. We have Murphy. We have Mary Tyler Moore yes, in the 70s. My favorite. Yeah. yeah. Scandal when she slept over her boyfriend's house. Yes. Yeah. You see the scandal of Murphy Brown living alone, having a child out of wedlock, Ellie McBeal and the scandal of co-ed bathrooms, Mm. and then all the way to Carrie Bradshaw and her crew of of women in Sex in the City. Why is there always a scandal associated with single women living alone? Right. It's so mysterious and strange, isn't it? It's just it's threatening. It's still threatening. I, I mean, less so now, but I think that's what it is. It's just it's a threat to the social order to have a woman by herself. And you can kind of see that play. I mean, married people get threatened by single women, that, that kind of femme fatale. Uh, you know, and even when you think back about women entering the workforce and women living alone and going to work and being with men in a public sphere, even if they weren't quite equals yet, and how threatening that was to the social order because the social order is arranged around the nuclear family and the marital unit. When we have women who are outside of that, it's people don't know what to do. The flip side is also prevalent, and you write about this at length. She's also selfless, and you state the following examples. Lady Liberty, Florence Nightingale, Mother Teresa. She's also charmingly eccentric, and you reintroduce us to Mary Poppins, Holly Golightly, Auntie Mame, and she's also powerful, Rosie the Riveter, Wonder Woman, Joan of Arc. Why do you think that single women have had to be categorized into these archetypes? Oh, it's Well, also, women are always categorized, right? So it's not just single women themselves. We're, we're always pl- having to play these roles or we have roles assigned to us. And single women in particular, it's about wherever the culture is and it's thinking about women, then it can find a way to feel okay about the single woman as long as she's filling a specific role. And so, mm. you know, I think of like... Alice from the Brady Bunch and Mary Poppins, uh, even Aunt Jemima, even though that's a whole other story. But when we have pictures of women who are alone, as long as they're in a domestic space and helping other people, then they're okay. So the spinster has a long history of that, of, of being the you know the family caretaker, the the sibling who stays home. The spinster was considered unthreatening as long as she was domesticated. In 2006, social psychologist Bella DiPaolo coined the word singleism to mean the stereotyping, stigmatizing, and discrimination against people who are single. Yet we've been doing that for over 100 years. Um, the term old maid or spinster was considered derogatory and Yet we've had the word spinster as part of our vernacular since the middle of the 14th century. Can you talk a little bit about the derivation of the word? Yeah. I mean, the reason I chose the word spinster for the title of the book is because I like how it immediately broadcasts centuries of changeability because the word itself originated in the Middle Ages to describe the women who worked outside of the home spinning thread into wool. So it was an occupational designation like baker or butcher. Uh, completely neutral. It it just happened to be women because the only women who could work outside of the home were those who didn't have children to take care of. So it was just mostly girls, 14, 15, 16, who had these jobs. And because they were 
young and didn't have children, they were unmarried, right? So, but it, there, there were no judgments around it. It wasn't until colonial America, according to my research, from what I was able to piece together, that the word became derogatory. And that was because we were building a population. We needed every woman to be on board procreating and having, at best, 8.2 children, which was what? 8.2? 8.2 was insane. That, wow. so, so as soon as you were fertile, you just started having kids and did until you were infertile or died, you know, whichever happened first. So if women weren't taking part in that, they were actually a menace to society because it was such a tiny, you know, the settlers, you know, it was a tough time. (laughs) Back then, if you weren't married by 23, you were a spinster. And if by 25, you were still unmarried, you were called a thornback, which was a species of flat, spiny fish. And that word has not stuck around. Thankfully. (laughs) So not only has the word spinster meant different things at different times, but also the age at which a woman is considered a spinster changes. So it also contains the age of first marriage and when it's considered, when a woman is considered, quote unquote, of marriageable age. So for a long time, that was 18. Uh, You know, then it kind of moved to 23. You know, these days, the average age of marriage is 28. So, of course, nobody uses the word spinster seriously anymore. But it just shows us how what marriageable age means is so changeable as well. Do you feel that there's an opportunity to transform the word spinster the same way that the word queer has been reappropriated, for example? I don't think so. I, I almost don't even think it really needs to be. There's not, like, I think the word queer really needed to be, that that group needed the strength that came from that. And I don't think that single women are as oppressed as gays and lesbians were for so long. You know, it's not, so it's not equal in my mind. It, to me, it, the word spinster, it's more that I think it's a fun way to think about this topic uh, but because the word hasn't been used seriously in so long, it doesn't necessarily need to be reclaimed. You interweave your own personal history through your book and introduce us to the five extraordinary women that you have been talking to for a good number of years. You came to consider these women your awakeners. It's a term you borrowed from Edith Wharton, and she first used the term in her memoir, A Backward Glance, which described the books and thinkers who guided her intellectual studies. Can you talk a little bit about how each of the awakeners, each of your awakeners, specifically impacted you? Um, I'd love to start with Edna St. Vincent Millay. You know, I returned to her when I was in my early 30s and living in Manhattan. And it was I was really single for the first time in the sense that I wasn't in some kind of boyfriend-girlfriend scenario. I was one of those people who just partnered all the time. Serial monogamous. Serial monogamous, yeah. I was really freaked out about what it means to be a single person here in this 21st century. It just was a lot of sex or a lot of expectation for sex. And me, you know, high school virgin here, I was just like, it was a... I wasn't confident about it. I didn't know how to uh, comport myself outside of the safety of a relationship. And and so, as I mentioned earlier, I think Edna Millay had always been a kind of threatening figure to me because she was so she was a sexual firebrand. You know, she was not afraid of anything at all, ever, uh, male or female. She did everything, whatever she wanted. And I thought that that was a kind of entitlement that I couldn't relate to and didn't want to relate to. But when I returned to her, 
I came to see that she was a woman with so much integrity and that she treated the people in her life so well, even though she broke hearts. It wasn't it was more that other people's expectations were let down. She wasn't leading anybody on. and She didn't misrepresent herself. Exactly, yeah. So I, I came to see that that kind of sexual bravery wasn't as uh, threatening to me. It was that as long as you were being honest with yourself and other people, you could do whatever you wanted. So that's why she was useful to me. Maeve Brennan was a writer for The New Yorker. She wrote the column, The Long-Winded Lady, She was probably the most physically similar to you. Mm -hmm. She also had a very tragic ending. Her life ended really really tragically. Can you talk a little bit about her history and and what fascinated you most in, in her work? Yeah. So Maeve was born in 1917 in Ireland and moved to the States with her family and then moved to New York in her 20s alone to be a writer. By the 40s, she was writing for The New Yorker, this column, The Long-Winded Lady, uh, in which she would just wander around New York observing and writing these urban sketches. So co-opting the urban flaneur tradition, which had heretofore been male only. Uh, So she wrote that column for several decades. Nobody knew who she was. I mean, some people did, but it was always under that long-winded lady byline. I first came to her in 1998 when a couple of her books were reissued, and The New Yorker did a big piece on her and had a huge photograph of Maeve in the magazine. And I saw it and felt like I was looking at a future version of myself. She kind of looked a little, you know, I'm of Irish descent. I could see my features and her features. She was older than me, not that much. At the time, I was, you know, kind of mid-20s. She's early 30s in that photograph. But because the photo was taken in the 40s, you know, the way people looked older then. So she just looked like an impossibly distant grown-up, but with this kind of authority and autonomy. There was uh, such self-sufficiency in her expression, and I wanted it. I felt like such a lost, tentative 20-something, not really, you know, I had desires about where I wanted to go, didn't know if I'd be able to do it. And something about her aura of self-reliance really spoke to me. And then I, because of that photo, read her columns. And I had never read a woman writing about herself not in relation to somebody else, whether a child or a parent or a spouse. So it was wholly Maeve Brennan's point of view, what she saw, what she experienced. And, and that astounded me, too. I wanted that. I wanted to, f- to feel like what it felt like to be in the world, not attached to somebody. I'd always been a good daughter. I'm a good big sister. I'd always been a good girlfriend. I, I wanted to learn what I was when I wasn't in relation. Uh, so... That's why I fell in love with Maeve. And I think it was 2006 was when the first and only biography of Maeve came out when I learned her real story, which was that over time she, you know, she she had been married very briefly for five years and then but before and after lived alone, never had a house of her own. She was always renting, uh, borrowing friends places, going to writers colonies and eventually ended up a homeless bag lady on the streets of New York. And just an absolutely tragic story. How did that happen? Did she have a, a mental illness of sorts? I mean, how does she go from being essentially the talk of the town in The New Yorker right. to becoming a bag lady? Yeah, she she was mentally ill, and it's really hard. Her biographer 
didn't feel safe diagnosing it because diagnoses have changed so much over time. But it seems most equivalent to some form of schizophrenia. You write about how a recent study by a life insurance company states that nearly half of all American women fear becoming bag ladies. Not only the never married women who rank the highest um, at 56 percent, but also the divorced at 54 percent, the widowed at 47 percent, and even those who are still married at 43 percent. Why do you think this is so prevalent? I I also fear it. Hmm. I've worked hard my entire life and still self-sufficient woman that I am fear ending up a bag lady on the streets of New York City. Right. I I think that specter exists in order to terrorize us, that it's a way of letting us not feel our own power, because Mm. unless we are struck by some kind of mental illness, you know, the odds are we're going to be able to continue to take care of ourselves for the rest of our lives and be okay. That doesn't mean life will be perfect or anything. But there's this idea that that the love of a man is the best reward or the, the highest achievement, and that without that, everything goes to ruin, no matter how strong and competent a woman actually is. So it's just socialized into us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, do one men... in two women feel this way? Yeah. Right. It's extraordinary. To me. And do you think men feel this no, way? No, I don't. I've never heard a, a man say anything remotely like that. <laughs> I've heard so many women say this, and yeah. I actually have never heard a man say, I'm worried I'm going to end up a bag man. Right, right. There really isn't even a term, right. a bag man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about Neith Boyce, the novelist and playwright. She founded the Provincetown Players. Yeah, Neath was an, a very exciting discovery for me. So at this point, I was, you know, just thinking about Maeve nonstop. And then in the year 2000, when I moved to New York, and I mean, like in my personal life, I was living with my boyfriend. I felt, you know, I was 28, 29, thinking I'm probably supposed to marry this person because I love him and he's great. But oh, I this was the boyfriend you broke up with, yeah, the kind man. Yeah. Yes. And why don't I want to marry him? What is that? I, I didn't know how to resolve my own feelings or think about them. It was too terrifying. I didn't know how to think about it to myself or talk about it to myself. And in that state of mind, I found Neath Boyce. In uh, I was reading Christine Stansel's book, uh, American Moderns, about Greenwich Village, Bohemia at the turn of the last century. And Neath had been a major player during that period. So I marched off to the library and found a column that she had written in the year 1898 for Vogue magazine called The Bachelor Girl, about her decision to never marry. And this really blew my mind. I had not known, even though I had studied American history in college, that there had been such a public critique of the institution of marriage to the point that it was being written about in a mainstream magazine like Vogue. So that cracked open a whole world to me. And over time, I just kept coming back and back to that period because of that sense of opportunity. And it was women talking about their lives and thinking about marriage and whether or not they wanted it. But before identity politics took over the language and and hijacked the ways in which people talk about themselves. So I found a very refreshing kind of idealism in the way that they were talking about it. And it was very, it felt intimate because it hadn't been codified into any kind of jargon. So that, I mean, that was neath for me particularly, but also her cohorts. I want to ask you about Bachelor Girls. 
I had only associated that term with Wendy Wasserstein as mm. she used it for the title of one of her books, Bachelor Girls. But apparently it's been around since 1895. Yeah. Yeah. 1895, Bachelor Girls. Can you share some of the history of the term? The term Bachelor Girl is a representation of the demographic shift that was taking place. So up until then, if you were an unmarried woman, you were a spinster or an old maid or a maiden aunt, right? But now, suddenly, there were these this, this new version of unmarried woman who was young, still of quote-unquote marriageable age, left home, working on her own, living in the city, living by herself. There needed to be something to call her. So she, people came up with the term bachelor girl. And also, you know, the new woman was another moniker. Yeah. Yeah. You also make the distinction between being socially single and personally single. What is the difference between those two? Those are Bella DePaolo's definitions. And Bella DePaolo has been studying the singles demographic for many, many years now. She's a real pioneer in this field in terms of research and thinking. And she's been fascinating. And when I started the book, I... I didn't agree with her very particular uh, varieties of single. I felt like you're either single or you're not. Done. Like you're, you're with someone or you're not. <laughs> That's it. But, it's like but, it was an honorary single person, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I came around to it that I, I now see that there's a uh, – I mean, maybe I'll change my mind again. But I'm still in a place where I believe that there's also – a kind of single state of mind. And and Bella de Paolo calls it single at heart. People who know that they never want to be with anybody ever and they've always known that. And Bella is one of those people. And those people are in the minority very much. Just just as statistically, the vast majority of women who have children are people who felt undecided. It's a very small minority who know for sure they never want kids and a very small minority who definitely want kids. Everybody's in this vast middle. And, and so it is with singleness. It's... Um, not many people are absolutely sure they never want to be partnered. But I, I came to see that there is a, a way – There's, it's almost like an orientation. There are people in the world who even when they're, they are coupled, they just, they're not identifying themselves through the relationship. They're still essentially single somehow. And it's not um, – I think that can be looked at – uh, kind of askance, like that's someone who doesn't know how to rely on others or like whatever ways we want to talk about it. Well, it might not be wanting to be owned because that was the original intention of marriage. Yes. yes, Ownership. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Edith Wharton is next. Edith Wharton was a Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist, short story writer and designer. She's also the first woman to have won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1927, 1928, 1930. It's extraordinary. Isn't that amazing? It's terrible that she didn't win it. It is terrible. It is absolutely terrible that she didn't. Um, but talk about why you chose Edith Wharton. Huh. So um, I'd always loved Edith Wharton's novels. And then in the like 2006, 7, 8, I was working at Domino Magazine and feeling conflicted about it because I had lots of conflicting feelings about home decor and luxury consumer magazine world where I was now living. And, and part of what was conflicting about it was that I was I really loved it. <laughs> I, I loved it and then felt suspicious and ashamed of it at the same time. And I didn't know how to reconcile these feelings. And then uh, a new biography of Wharton came out by Hermione Lee. And that is when I learned that Edith Wharton's first book had been an architecture and decorating manual called The Decoration of Houses in the year 1898, the same year Neath Boyce was writing her column. And that unlocked 
a different kind of appreciation for Wharton than I had ever known. I'd always been so impressed by her masterful descriptions of interiors and fashions. But I just thought, you know, she was kind of good at that. I hadn't understood that this was part of a real life philosophy. It's how she saw the world and understood it. The book is brilliant. It's it's really it's it's almost like a sociological text, but just with rooms and windows and doors standing in as metaphors for other ideas about how we relate to people and and so forth. And so, seeing how Wharton had no complications embracing that part of herself really allowed me to embrace it more. And and that's how she came into my life in a more personal way. And. And then, you know, her story is that, you know, she grew up very wealthy in Manhattan, married, society wife, traveling the world, living in Europe half the year, doing the whole thing, mansions, etc. And then around 1900, she uh, designs and builds her own country house, the Mount in Lenox, Massachusetts, and starts setting about leaving her husband. And once she left her husband is when she really became the Edith Wharton that we know and, and lived this life, you know, never remarried, always living alone. And, and I saw that she was masterful at the way she created her life as a single person, that she, in fact, designed the mount to accommodate her desires to both write novels every morning and socialize with friends. She was a very social person. So the, the way that she could reconcile her need for solitude with her need for socializing, uh, her need for domesticity with travel. It was really useful. She has so much to say about how to live alone well and that you need to establish what your needs are and meet them and that there's no one way to do it. The last awakener is Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and she was a prominent American feminist, sociologist, a novelist, a writer of short stories, poetry, nonfiction, and is probably most known to people for writing The Yellow Wallpaper, which she wrote after a severe bout of postpartum psychosis. Why did you include her? Well, after my article for The Atlantic came out, I came across Herland, which was a satirical novella she wrote that came out in 1915 or 16 about an all-female society of parthenogenic women who give birth. Uh, and it's a really strange and kooky and wonderful book. So that's when she became more to me than just the yellow wallpaper person. And then I started really the only way to say it is just girl crushing on her. She was a genius. She was crazy. She was nonstop ideas always, nonstop energy. She knew herself absolutely. Uh, there's so much to admire about her. And, and there are also some things about her that are not to be admired. But as I'm looking into her, I'm realizing that she brings together all of my interests, which are represented in piecemeal by these other women that I'm writing about. So she too, like me, like all of the women I write about, is very interested in the home, is very interested in family. She's not rejecting family. She's just redefining family. She loves the domestic space, but doesn't want to be trapped inside of the domestic space, but doesn't want to reject it either. Like So there's, that's the, the space in general that I inhabit and was trying to navigate. How do you redefine your own life when actually you like traditional things. For a long time, I just had understood that you could either be, you know, a badass who just rejected everything and went her own way or a conventional sheep. But where was where was the mid range? And so Charlotte Perkins Gilman was, you know, just writing novels all the time, you know, had her own journal, The Forerunner, which she put out monthly. She wrote the whole thing herself. She did that for something like 12 years. Um, 
But most exciting to me was her idea of how to think about architecture in the home and to liberate women from the kitchen and from the drudgery of housework. And so she was uh, espousing the kitchenless house. So kitchens should be communal spaces. Laundries should be communal spaces. And this is how we would find equality between the sexes. This would be a piece of that larger puzzle. And, it, you know, as we know, that didn't happen. This this country is just smeared with single family, family homes that now aren't really working out so well anymore, now that we have this population of people who are wanting to live alone. And so these ideas about co-housing and communal living are back in vogue again in a way that they haven't been since the 1970s and in a way that she was really invested in at a time when nobody else was. You include the results of the 1962 poll wherein you detail how the majority of wives polled claim that they were happy, but only 10% wanted their daughters to follow suit. What do you make of this seeming rejection of the possibility that women can be really happy in marriage? Are we happier and healthier people, more creative if we are alone? I think that's really hard to answer. It's very individual. And that's why it's important that we not think that marriage is the only way to be happy because it actually isn't for a lot of people, right? So there's no one answer for anybody. There's no one right way to be, I don't think. But I do think that the alone state, whether it's somebody's whole life or only a portion of life, can be a very rewarding, exploratory time period where you know we learn things about ourselves when we're by ourselves in, in a way that we don't when we're in a couple. And just as when we're in a couple, we learn about other parts of ourselves. So it's to me, there's a balance. Do you think that being alone will someday be free of any stigma? I think so. Yeah, I think it's happening already. I mean, just five years ago, when I wrote that all the single ladies story, I didn't see that going on. But the conversation has been so huge and loud. It seems very swift. And I also think that the legalization of same-sex marriage is changing the way in which people are thinking about family arrangements. So the straight world is really borrowed from the gay world in that way, in salubrious ways. Good word. (laughs) Uh, My last question is um, a personal one. You've written about how your way of coupling was to merge completely And whenever you felt the need to be separate, if only for a day, you got nervous and suppressed it. Have you changed? I have. And the way I see it is that there I was, you know, from ages 14 to 29, a serial monogamist. And then I spent 29 to 39 uh, alone. You know, I was I was dayed. I was in and out of things, but um, nothing legitimately serious. You know, I was, I was really significant, nothing significant and, and really learning how to be self-reliant and take care of myself and be economically self-sufficient and all of that. So that by the time I met this guy, I'm still seeing now when I'm 39, when I was 39, I was able to enter into that relationship in a way I had not been capable of when I was younger. And it was because I had carved out enough of myself that uh, was separate from the relationship. So now I'm in this relationship where I feel committed to him, but I don't prioritize it over the other parts of my life. So my, my work and my friendships and my family all feel on the same level and I don't feel lost in any one direction. But it took me that decade of sorting it all out to be able to do that. 
You conclude, Spinster, with a wonderful revelation, and I'd like to end our podcast today by sharing that passage with our listeners. You state, while researching this book taught me the true value of the spinster writing it, made me see that the question I'd long posed to myself, whether to be married or to be single, is a false binary, the space which I've always wanted to live, indeed, where I've spent my adulthood, isn't between those two poles, but beyond it. The choice between being married versus being single doesn't even belong here in the 21st century. Kate Bolick, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you so much. This has been lovely. To find out more about Kate Bolick, head on over to her website, katebolick.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we could do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.